Welcome to Industry Focus, a podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, February 15th, and we're catching up on SurveyMonkey and an acquisition by Amazon. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I've got Fool.com tech specialist Evan New on Skype. Evan, what's going on? It's been a hectic week. Like I told you last week, the, and you've probably seen it on the national news at this point, that Denver had a teacher strike, so the kids were home like three days this week. But I was able to get you know, a good amount of work in, so it wasn't too bad. So you had the kids home. Did you did you do anything for Valentine's Day? Anything special yesterday? No, honestly, because my uh, 10-year anniversary is actually coming up next month, so I'm putting all my energy into planning something for that. That's good. That's nice. That's very thoughtful, Evan. You know, it, it kind of works out well. You get to be nice and thoughtful. Maybe you get a little bit of a pass this February 14th. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know who did not get a pass, Evan? You? No, I, I, I was fine. <laughs> I, I did take out with my girlfriend and we had a lovely time. It was actually the first uh, Valentine's Day that we've spent together. So we had a blast. I was actually queuing you up for Survey Monkey because Survey Monkey <laughs> did not have such a sweet February 14th. As a matter of fact, the company reported earnings this week. And the stock market, you know, analysts didn't really seem too happy with it. Yeah, the stock tank, like 15 some odd percent. Uh, it's their second report as a public company. But yeah, the, the invest, investors were not very impressed. And I think this was kind of a big report for them because their first report came so shortly after they had gone public. So, like a lot of the stuff that we were looking at in terms of numbers was more or less related to what we'd seen in the prospectus. This time around, we're getting their full-year results for 2018, and we're getting some news about what's going on with their C-suite with executives. Right. So, I mean, there are they are making some progress in certain, you know, some important areas like user growth. Uh, paying users were up, uh, I think, seven percent to getting close to 650,000 at this point, um, and you know, 26,000 of those came in during the fourth quarter. But you know, I think that there's still a lot of challenges because you know this is predominantly a self-serve business. Uh, which still comprises almost 90% of revenue, with enterprise sales being just you know 10-13%. And I, I don't really like that. I mean, it helps them scale, but it, I don't see a lot of growth there. Yeah, I think ultimately they want to move to the point where they're working more and more with enterprise clients. There's a lot of value there. Uh, in case anyone is not familiar with this company, this is a software-as-a-service play working on research, data collection for a lot of big companies. That's the goal, a lot of individual users right now. Um, looking at the results, which was kind of interesting to me, was on the bottom line, they hit estimates. On the top line, they beat estimates, and we still saw the sell-off. I looked at a lot of these results. You know, We saw for the full year of 2018, the company put up 16% year-over-year growth, which was actually an acceleration from where they were in 2017, and yet the market wasn't happy. Yeah, and they also made progress with average revenue per user. ARPU is up 13% to like $425. So I think you know, they are making some progress in certain areas, but you know, at the same time, you know, they're they're still facing some, some pretty big challenges, which we can touch on later in terms of like their balance sheet and other areas. But I also think that part of it was the fact that their CFO is leaving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people generally don't like to see that, huh? Yeah, so their CFO Tim Malley is retiring. He's been with the company for ten years, uh, and I I don't see anything suspicious about the announcement itself. I mean, he's been there for quite a long time. It doesn't seem like he's, you know, jumping ship or anything like that. Um, but at the same time, you know, with a, a company that's twenty years old, has this kind of uncertainty, still operating at a loss, having your CFO leave just doesn't give you a lot of confidence. 
Right. He got them to the point where they went public. And, you know, he was someone that was very instrumental in them building out their finance and accounting departments. I think he started at the company when there were like 15 people there. So he's seen an immense growth with them as a company. Um, but for him to leave shortly after taking them public, uh, yeah, you don't really want to see that. I mean, he said he was retiring so that he could enjoy more time in the outdoors and kind of relax. He's had a long corporate career. I get that. I think most investors, though, would like to see the executives stick around a little bit longer, especially because the company just went public. Right. It just it just introduces this a lot of uncertainty at this really pivotal point in the company's history, which, you know, again, they're twenty years old, so it's just kind of crazy that they're only now going public. But you know, it doesn't really help when you know you have other challenges going on in the business. One thing I was pretty happy about looking at these results: you hit on the user growth, which is great. You hit on the ARPU growth. Uh, we saw dollar-based expansion growth, which is something that this company has really struggled with in the past. And for folks unfamiliar with this type of metric, you can think about it the same way that you would for comps for either a store or maybe a restaurant, where you're looking at the cohort that you had a year ago and the cohort now and trying to see, okay, how much revenue are we getting from these people? Um, when they went public, they were at 95%, which is to say that they were getting 95 cents on the dollar for all the customers that they were getting a dollar from a year prior. Now we're seeing that the expansion growth is over 100%. That's what management said in the call. That's what you want to see with a SaaS company. Right. I think it shows that they're at least keeping their users. There's not a lot of churn within this you know, subscriber base. And you know, a lot of these people are using these surveys on, you know, on a pretty regular basis. So I think that does you know, kind of support their, their narrative that you know, they have this user base that is growing and stable. They're not really like, losing a lot of customers. One of the big pushes for all of these, the user growth, ARPU, dollar-based expansion rate, was the fact that they have really focused on the enterprise market, and they've rolled out this Teams product. Uh, and the idea here is they had all of these customers who were having multiple people use one account, one login, in order to access stuff that several people would be accessing. So you basically have like four people using one login. And they have moved to this model that supports four different people having accounts, having to be collaborative accounts that people can work across. And if you're trying to target the enterprise market, that's what you need to do, because all of the value comes from having multiple heads and that company paying for each software license. Right. And I think now, at this point, they're up to about 3,500 enterprise customers. So, still getting started, but you know, again, making some progress. Evan, you mentioned the balance sheet. I know you spent some time looking at that. What stuck out to you over there? So one thing I mean we talked about this when we covered their IPO last year but one thing that kind of stood out to me was the fact that they planned on using 100 million dollars of their IPO proceeds to pay down some of this debt that they've accumulated over the years uh, which they did in the fourth quarter uh, and they had they had, you know told investors up front they were going to do that they announced it when they did it in October um, so now we're seeing you know kind of the, the what the statements look like after that and I mean the company still has quite a bit of debt they have 220 million dollars worth of debt which is actually greater than their cash position. So their net cash is negative 60, 65 million. Uh, I mean, they refinanced this debt facility and they were able to kind of modestly reduce their interest rates on what they're paying. Uh, these are This is floating rate debt that's tied to LIBOR. And the, the spread that they got now is about 75 basis points lower. So they, they will be saving money and it, it's definitely a good thing incrementally. But at the same time, the broader point is just that SurveyMonkey has a lot of debt, and they're they're paying a ton of interest on it. They're operating at a loss, and that interest rate, you know, that interest expense does not help at all. Yeah, they're not really going to be able to do anything to aggressively pay down that debt if that's what they want to do because they're not profitable. Right, and you know, with this, it ties into all this talk about them trying to expand their enterprise business because having an enterprise sales team is super expensive. 
And that's kind of, you know, the, how, do, how are they going to build out this enterprise sales team when they're already operating a loss, they have this huge debt burden, and, you know, that, that if that's where, you know, the future of this company is in terms of where they want to grow, how are they going to pay for all that? One of the things that I really was interested in with this report is we got the quarterly guidance, we got the full year guidance from this company, and looking out to 2019, the company expects growth of about 15%. Uh, that's at the midpoint of their guidance. And some of the analysts on the call had looked at this one comment that CEO Xander Lurie made. And he said, I do have confidence that we will reaccelerate growth in 2020. And then he went on to say, We aim to double the size of each business in the next two years, and I'd lean towards three more than four. And so you look at that and you're like, Okay, you're giving guidance saying that you're going to grow 15% next year. If you're doubling your business in a three or four year period, that's implying a compound annual growth rate of 26 or 19% respectively. They're forecasting for 15%. What am I missing here, Evan? <laughs> Those numbers don't really add up. <laughs> and yeah, I mean I I would be just as skeptical as you are. I mean, how are how do they double or triple the size of these businesses when this is a 20-year-old business, everyone knows it's around. They have much larger competitors. They're, you know, they they can't invest properly in growing the business. I don't see it happening. You mentioned the competitors. One thing that came up repeatedly on the call, it was an allusion to this company, uh, but not actually named, was the fact that they have a pretty steep competitor that was recently acquired uh, in the past couple months. Right. SAP bought Qualtrics, um, and Qualtrics is a much bigger company. SAP is enormous. It's a huge player in enterprise software. So you have this tiny company like ServerMonkey that's trying to compete with this global behemoth. I, I don't think they have good odds. Particularly when you think about the fact that most of the growth, most of the interesting growth from them is going to be coming on the enterprise side where they're going to need to build out a really strong sales force. They're going to be competing against a company that's more established and has deep pocketed investors in SAP who is happy to give them a very similar sales force. And they have cross sales opportunities, they have existing relationships. I mean, they have all sorts of advantages over Little Survey Monkey. So, big picture with this stock, Evan, the way I'm looking at this, I see a lot of things that are going in the right direction. I think them moving to this team's product, them finally getting back on track with dollar-based net expansion, all of those metrics are moving in the right direction. I don't love the fact that the CFO left, but I think core business looks pretty good. The reality is it's below its IPO price at $17, puts them at about $1.5 billion valuation and six times sales. Now, I own SaaS stocks that trade for a much richer valuation than that, but they also have a much more compelling growth story ahead of them. Right. I think this is kind of one of those cases where like, you get what you pay for. Like, If they're trading at you know, much cheaper valuations compared to other you know, SaaS plays, it's probably a good reason for it. And I agree that they are, you know, there are some good signs and you know, they are making, you know, putting up some good numbers in certain areas of the business. But overall, I'm still not interested in owning this stock at all. Right. 20-year-old business, not growing at a compelling rate, not profitable either. You want one or the other when you've been around for that long. Yeah, so I, I'm not surprised that they're trading at a at a discount relative to some of their peers. Yeah, Evan, one of the other stories that got a lot of headlines this week was Amazon's acquisition of Wi-Fi mesh company Eero. We're going to talk about how this fits into the company's long-term vision, but why don't we do a little rundown on mesh first? Because I don't really think we've talked about this technology all that much. Sure. So, if you know, for people that aren't as familiar with it. Uh, Wi-Fi technology generally doesn't advance super rapidly compared to other areas of tech, but mesh networking is kind of 
the current big thing in local networking. So mesh networks use you know multiple network access points or nodes to blanket a large area with Wi-Fi coverage. And it's different than like kind of traditional Wi-Fi extenders because the system is much smarter and the nodes are able to proactively communicate with each other to kind of you know, use algorithms to determine the best way to route traffic within the network, which is called dynamic routing, which is much more efficient than traditional extenders because, you know, those old extenders, they don't really communicate to the same degree and they tend to send traffic over the same routes and that can cause congestion and you know, other issues with your local performance. So, you know, those traditional range extenders, they usually have weaker signals as you get kind of further and further away from your, your main router. These mesh systems can kind of keep a strong signal throughout the entire system. And big picture, this is kind of where Wi-Fi is going, right? Right. I mean, the end result is that they're faster, they're more reliable, they're more efficient, uh, particularly if you're trying to cover a large area like a, a large home, several thousand square feet, maybe two or three stories or a small office, uh, whatever the case may be. Uh, they're also extremely easy to set up, but they're expensive. You know, Most of these cost three to $400. We don't know the exact terms of the purchase, You know, Amazon buying this company, but I think it's safe to say that Jeff Bezos and company, we're not looking at Eero and saying, like, oh, that's a nice little business. We're going to buy them and just let them do their own thing. I, I think that this probably plays into some big strategy for them. Right. So they, they did not disclose financial terms, but uh, we know that Eero last valuation in 2016 was about $250 million in a private funding round. Uh, Amazon says that they think that this, connection, this acquisition can help them basically improve smart home connections. And as we know, Amazon is pretty big in smart home and they have a really strong position. And Eero had already been integrating with Alexa, so you could already do things like voice controls, you know, control certain parts of your network. So I, I, I really like how, you know, Amazon sees this as an opportunity. And at the same time, you know, Google has been kind of getting into this Wi-Fi mesh space a little bit with Google Wi-Fi, which came out in 2016. And Google is, is a pretty big, you know, competitor to Amazon in the smart home because they're expanding their smart speaker, uh, sales. They have Nest, which has been expanding beyond thermostats and getting into things like home security and cameras. So I think this is really part of a bigger play to compete better with Google. And I think it makes a lot of sense because you look at the way that this technology works, where you have kind of all of these nodes distributed throughout the house or the building or whatever you're looking at. That sounds a lot like a lot of the ecosystems that Amazon's currently pushing in hardware, right? Where maybe you have one main hub and then you have all these echo dots sprinkled throughout your house. It doesn't seem like a stretch for that type of Wi-Fi connectivity to then be brought into Amazon devices, or vice versa. Right, exactly. And I think there's a lot of potential for this deal to accelerate their roadmap because not only are there benefits with you know having deep integration between your mesh router system and your smart home devices, but you know there's a lot of new kind of categories that are coming out that combine a lot of these products. And like you said, you know Echo, Amazon wants you to put an Echo in basically every room of your house. And there, are, at this point, we in the past six months, we've seen a couple of companies come out with smart speaker slash router combos, which is kind of an interesting thing because you have a smart speaker with Alexa plus that also, you know, functions as a router. So it's so it's easy to imagine, you know, a couple of years down the line, maybe Amazon puts out an Echo device that is also a mesh node that improves your network performance, or you know, if you look at Echo Plus, which is you know, a smart speaker plus smart home hub adding it in there too. So it's smart speaker plus mesh node plus smart home hub. I mean, there's just so many things that they can do with this technology. We can't talk about big tech going into people's living rooms without talking a little bit about some of the privacy concerns that might come with that. I know there's been some blowback related to this announcement. Evan, what's your take on that? So a lot of people like privacy advocates are worried that what Amazon is trying to do here is 
monitor everyone's web activity and traffic and just see what you're doing. And I think that fear is a little overblown. Uh, Eero's privacy policy explicitly says they do not monitor that type of data, and they're not changing the policy even after this acquisition. Uh, Amazon has had, you know, it's not kind of Facebook levels of scandals that we're talking about, but Amazon has had a couple of these privacy snafus in recent years where there'd be some type of privacy issue with related Echo, which is a microphone in your house. Uh, but they tend to be few and far between, and they're usually just like a rare technical glitch. But that being said, I, I think the data is part of this deal, uh, just not like internet traffic type data. I mean, Eero does collect data on what devices are connected to it. And that can give Amazon insights into what kinds of devices people are using in their smart home. And that can also you know, help be useful for their future roadmap. Is that to say that when these combined devices from Amazon and Eero come out, Evan, you might be a buyer? I actually have been looking at one of these for a while, but I've been putting it off because like my Wi-Fi is fine and I don't need it. <laughs> but it's funny because this acquisition actually makes me want to go buy one. A lot of people don't like when these small companies get snapped up by these tech giants, but I actually prefer it that way because I know that they'll have more support, and they'll be more stable over the long term. Uh, I'll probably buy one the next six months. Yeah, that's kind of the give and take here, right? Is being a part of a larger company gives you access to the ecosystem and everything they've built out, all of the resources that they have available on the technical development side, too. It comes with some concerns, though. Right, exactly. I mean, a lot of these small companies might have hit products, but then if they're not financially viable, they go out of business, and then you're stuck with a product that can't get support on. Yeah. All right, Evan, I'm going to let you go. I know that you have kids at home and a 10-year anniversary to be planning for. Thanks for hopping on today's show. Thanks for having me. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, you can shoot us an email over at industryfocus at pool.com. Or you can tweet us at MF Industry Focus. If you want more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or check out videos from this podcast over on YouTube. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Dan Boyd for all his work behind the glass. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.